Dark Art Society podcast covers a variety of important and contemporary issues, including dark art, as well as other kinds of art, literature, film, music, also culture, philosophy, dreams, paranormal experiences, magic, and a whole lot more than that. I'm Mike Carell, director of Chet's Art. I like to paint monsters. And you are listening to the Dark Art Society podcast, hosted by renowned artist Chet Zar. What's up, Mike? Hey, Chet. How are you today? I'm good because the heat wave's over. Thank God. Ooh, is it? Yeah. So what temperature is it now, though? It's like 70 or something. It's really Ooh, nice. Really nice. And it's going to be all mild for the next, like, two weeks in the oh, 60s. And oh, my God. This is miserable. 100 degree, 103 degree weather. In well, October. I'm glad you're out of it. Yes. Me too. I'm relieved. It's, it's pretty chill here. Is it? Yeah. It's nice and Nice and cool, but warm during the day, really sunny, all the fall colors. Nice. Yep. All the cottonwoods are all glorious and yellow and orange and red. Well, the, the salt cedar are red, but yeah, a lot of colors, really pretty. Very austere, you know, in the desert. Yeah. Lucky. You can see, Gabe, why our podcast is so popular now. This interesting Because we talk about the weather. <laughs> I'm fascinated. <laughs> Okay, so let's just get into it. We got uh, an interview today with artist Gabe Leonard, Gabriel W. Leonard on uh, Facebook, or Gabe Leonard is your artist page. But yeah, I've been, uh, I don't know, how long have we been friends, Gabe, now? It's been kind of a long time. Over a decade, I think. Yeah. And uh, Gabe's a really great painter. He's, I think he's one of the best painters around really he's really really good and uh he's got there's a lot of interesting things about him and um one of those is how good he is at the art business which is something that is really uh, seems to be a stumbling block for a lot of artists and i learned a lot about business uh, marketing artwork and stuff from gabe and he and he also sold me my first big printer my my real printer that i use i still still am using that printer the thing's amazing <clears throat> my Epson 4800, but, um, he kind of got me into the G clay thing and he's just got a lot of great info. So, uh, we thought we would interview him because I know you guys are going to dig it. Even though he's not a dark artist, we are not exclusively dark art. Although some of his work is kind of dark actually, but I wouldn't, you know, technically say he's a dark artist. He kind of does all <laughs> kinds of different stuff. We're just using that moniker to, as our little umbrella covers everything we're interested in. So anyway, sure. welcome to the show, Gabe. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, your your sto- the story of how you got uh, became a fine artist is actually really interesting. So uh, I think I'm sure you could tell it better than I could if you could just kind of give me a little overview of. <clears throat> well, I wasn't really trying to be a fine artist. Uh, I just wanted to be an artist that made money and was able to make a living with my art. So I uh, when I was in high school, I decided I would. Uh, look up what what you could do as an artist and make a living and uh, working as an animator was one of them. And I found that um, there was a, a lot of schools that were sending flyers to my art class in high school and I applied to a few of them and got a scholarship to one in Columbus, Ohio after I got rejected by a couple other ones in my junior year. And so the idea was to go there and, and to go to an art school because they had major companies that recruited artists and hired artists and, and uh, the way I was raised was that you're going to grow up and you're going to get a job and work with somebody doing something. But mm. so I figured I was going to do that as an artist. Yeah. So, you know, so I went to art school 
and uh, majored in, in the illustration side of things and uh, focused on uh, uh, animation, a lot of figure drawing, a lot of figure painting, all that kind of stuff, a lot of basic stuff, fundamental things. Um, and as I got towards the end of my college career, I decided I wanted to be a, you know, I, I liked painting, so I wanted to get into background painting for a feature animation. And I spent a lot of time, a lot of time landscape painting, and all my portfolio work is geared towards that. <clears throat> uh, I got a, I got an opportunity when I was a junior in college to go to a training program with Disney Feature Animation. They selected about thirty students from about six hundred applicants, you know, all across the country, to uh, attend this. And they brought in the animators and storyboard artists and background painters, and did a lecture and a little workshop. And, and out of that. You know, that lasted for about a month, and then they hired two people out of that, and the rest of us were probably shoe-ins for jobs after we graduated. So I spent my senior year of college focusing on landscape painting and all that kind of stuff. And uh, when I graduated, <clears throat> I decided I'd move to L.A. because that's where all the animation studios were, even though I wasn't going to get hired by Disney. That's where DreamWorks and Nickelodeon and Warner Brothers and Hanna-Barbera, and all of them were out here. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I thought was, well, maybe I'll go out there for a couple of weeks and pass my portfolio around. But then I decided that if I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to live there anyway. So why don't I just move there and then uh, I'll figure it out you know, when you get there. If I get hired. I'll already live there. It won't be as big a deal. Right. <clears throat> so I drove my car out to California uh, after the summer, you know, after I graduated college and uh, got into L.A., it was about this time of year, actually, late mid to late October, and it was hot as hell then too. I remember that. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. It's like, damn, it's hot in October. <laughs> uh, the first thing that happened is I got into LA, came in through the Pacific Coast Highway through Malibu, and on the ten, and then I got out near downtown and drove up through Koreatown, and somehow ended up in Burbank at the Burbank that uh, the, the mall up in Burbank. Mm. When they decided to go see a movie, the animated movie Ants. Oh, yeah. And what I didn't realize then was I was watching my career going flush down the toilet. <laughs> Before it even like, started. Because you know, the, the Legend of Mulan from Disney came Disney put out a feature animated movie about one every year. And The Legend of Mulan came out uh, that summer or the summer before. And then th that was the last traditionally animated feature animation movie from Disney that I know of. Like mm -hmm. It was released in theaters. So like <laughs> all the jobs that I had hoped for were just like gone. But I didn't really, I didn't really realize that. I was like, oh, you know, that's cool. <laughs> I, I passed my phone over to Disney. They, they didn't have any positions. I didn't even get interviews. DreamWorks, same thing. You know, all the studios. And then once you pass your portfolio around to a studio, they don't want to see you again for another six months. Oh, uh, really? So you got to do all kinds of new work. So you know, I could if I if I burned out my portfolio in three weeks at you know all the different studios, and I had to wait six months to go try to get another job. Oh shit. But what I did, another thing I didn't realize is that a lot of people were getting laid off. So there was background painters that had years of experience that were looking for work, and there was just no entry level positions at all. And the other thing that was working against me is is a uh, my my way of making a living in college. I, I was a work at a catering company in restaurants, and I thought, oh, you know, I could always get a catering job. I've managed parties and I got you know all kinds of experience. But that was that wasn't happening either. There was nothing available. There was no jobs unless you knew somebody had an in. Hmm. All, the, all the jobs that were flexible were taken up by other creatives that had already lived there. A lot of actors and stuff, and and all the jobs that you know, like 
even McDonald's in Columbus in 1998 was starting at $8 an hour. You know, wow. I was like, oh, I could make eight bucks an hour. Was like, <laughs> that wasn't happening here either. <laughs> lucky to get a minimum wage job because there were so many people here willing to work for nothing. It just drove all the wages down to nothing. Right. So my first job that I was able to actually get was working at Macy's for seasonal help, folding shirts, you know, for six, uh, six twenty-five or six seventy-five an hour. Wow. And uh, that wasn't even full time. It was like if I was lucky to get thirty hours, so I was like maybe one hundred eighty bucks in a week. You know. Wow. So where, I, where were you living? Where Glendale. were you? You were living in an apartment, or? Yeah, and I moved out here with my college roommate because oh, he wanted okay. to live here for a year and apply to grad school. Mm. So we so we found a a two bedroom apartment in Glendale right off of Brand for seven fifty a month, and uh, we couldn't get a. It was, we had a hard time finding an apartment because we didn't. Neither one of us had a job. And we couldn't get a job because we didn't have a place to live or a phone number. We didn't have cell phones. Yeah. I ended up having to get a pager. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so call me, and then I have to pull over and call someone from a payphone. And I'm trying to get a job. <laughs> Just bananas, Old days. Man. It was like, and uh, but finally, this couple that owned this apartment, you know, took a chance on some. You know, our parent parents co-signed, so you know, guaranteed it with their credit. Oh, cool. You know, that's what it, you know. I was lucky in a lot of ways. I had I had resources. I was if I didn't have family at that point, I was living. We were living in a hotel by the week, and I was I, I landed in LA with nineteen hundred dollars in my pocket. Wow! And if we were when we were we're not a money credit cards or max, we'd be on the street. Yep. You know, if we didn't have family or, or any sort of resources, and so we got that apartment, and that was kind of the, you know the way we moved in. We just grabbed our duffel bags out of my car and walked into the apartment. We had no furniture. Were you no, were you scared during this time or were you just kind of like young, um, young enough to just be whatever, let's just do it. Yeah. And, I had nothing to lose. You right. know, I, I, had, I hadn't attained any, like all my belongings fit in a duffel bag. I mean, what are you going to do? You know, right. just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what am I, what am I scared to lose my duffel bag? <laughs> <laughs> right. the, the fear was, the fear was becoming, you know, to a point where you couldn't get out of it. Like, yeah. like once you're, once you're on the street, I, I started to realize like, where are you going to shower? How are you going to go get a job? How do you, you know, like, and that was my first time I really realized that people, when they get to be in a homeless position, it's, it's exponentially harder, the worse off you are. It's, mm-hmm. and, it, and that, that was a fearful thought. I was like, man, that's, it gave me a whole different look outlook on homeless people. Yep. And, and people that are, that are, that are asking for help. You know, I was like, you know, you, you, you quit, uh, <clears throat> you know, you, you, what goes away is any sort of contempt you have, you know, like right. who cares if they're asking for a dollar? Like, it's a dollar to you, you know, because right. they're going to go buy, buy drugs or booze with it, you know, yeah. you know micromanage the homeless now. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, you know, you don't have to give to anybody, but if you, you know, there's no reason to be mad at people for asking for right. help, even if they help themselves. Right. Who cares? Right. Yeah. Anyways, totally, totally agree. Yeah. Anyway. So, so yeah, so I'm working at Macy's with college or high school kids at, barely above minimum wage and not getting anywhere. And, uh, one day my roommate and I were, we're down and we walk, we go to Venice beach and I see some artists out there selling their artwork on the boardwalk or that stuff on the ground. And, uh, you know, I'm looking anywhere I can, for what I can do to make some money anywhere. And, um, it dawned on me that they wouldn't be sitting out here for nothing. You know, they, mm-hmm. they probably are making something, which is better than nothing that I was making at Macy's. And uh, so I asked a few of them. None of them wanted to give me a straight answer. But it, it occurred to me that they weren't really that good. They were just, you know, not not to be disparaging, but they kind of sucked. Mm-hmm. And, and they sucked and they were out there still doing okay. You know, imagine maybe I can do even better. Right. So that was, that was the thing. 
So I called around and called around. None of the artists, nobody on the boardwalk gave me a straight answer. And I finally talked to somebody in the parks department on the phone. They said, all you had to do is be the artist selling your own artwork. You don't need a permit. You don't need to buy buy any sort of license because I couldn't afford to do any of that. Right. So once I knew I could do it for free, I just went down there with my portfolio and uh, my landscape paintings. And I'd made a couple, a few little color copies that, and make like little postcards out of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I made like $9 on my first day. I didn't know what I was doing. I had <laughs> I put all stuff on the ground on a blanket and then the sun came out and it, and I had uh, uh, watercolor paintings under glass frame glass and it started steaming up inside. And I oh had my to, God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people would ask me, well, how much you want? I'm like, I'd shake my head. I go, I, I, I don't know. You know, like uh, <laughs> $5. I just started, you know, guessing and, you know, and the thing it cost me six dollars to park that day, so I made three bucks. <laughs> but uh, I realized, like, okay, well, you know, it's a little fine tuning. I might be able to make this work, and so I went and made color copies, and I spray mounted them on the foam core and cut it out so there was like a little edge around it, and I put up my portfolio case, and I would park somewhere on the street and walk a couple blocks with my big portfolio case and a big blanket laid on the ground, lay them all out, and uh, start selling them, and you know, I started making. 30 or 40 bucks every time I went out there, which mm-hmm. wasn't that much, but it was, I worked eight hours at Macy's. I was making $48 and I, at least, right. at least here on the beach. You know? <laughs> so it wasn't, uh, as a, so this, this started like in January and February of 1999. And so when I got closer to the spring, like March, April, people, students started going on spring break. And, uh, all of a sudden uh, there was a weekend where I made, uh, Two hundred dollars in a weekend. Uh-huh. I was born. I was making cases a week, and so I was like, "Man, yeah. I need to, I need to have the weekends off so I can work during the week at Macy's, make some money, and work here, and I can make you know make some money." So I talked to my manager, and she refused to give me weekends off because I was part time, and she refused to give me full time shifts. So I, and I said, you know, she said, "Well, we can put you on call," and so I, that's what I had her do. And to this day, I think I'm still on call at Macy's. <laughs> <laughs> you never know; they may call you back one of these know. days. I, I get conflicted and I go there if I should take the employee entrance or not. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how long were you doing this before you, I mean, before you were making enough money to, to survive basically? Well, I, my way, my means were very meager. I mean, all I did was pay my rent. So mm-hmm. I didn't have my car, car was a piece of shit was paid for everything. I didn't have any expenses. Mm. I quit my job. I was, by the time I quit my job at Macy's, I was making enough to to pay my bills with my art, which was probably making, you know, a couple hundred bucks every weekend, so eight or nine hundred bucks a month, mm. maybe a thousand bucks, twelve hundred bucks a month. Yeah, that grew over the summers. Is I could go out there during the day, to, during the weekdays, and still make money. You know, right. So the problem became is when this first summer ended and all the tourists left. All of a sudden, there was nowhere to make any money, and I was scrambling, and I was hustling. So what I did is I, during the summers, people would approach me, and they'd want, you know, talk to me about hiring me for projects, and so I just kept addresses and phone numbers, and I started calling people, seeing if they wanted, you know, hire me for their projects, and I ended up getting hired uh, by somebody who found me down the boardwalk to do poster art for his uh, short film, mm-hmm. and he happened to... Uh, be part of the Blair Witch Project. He was a production designer there, and he had, oh, wow. he had uh, arranged a, uh, a deal that was pretty lucrative. Oh, was that Jay? It, uh, it was uh, a friend, Ben Rock. It was oh. a mutual friend of Jay. Oh, so that's okay. how I met Jay. Right, right, okay. And 
so he had me do his uh, poster art. And then he had other friends that were uh, screenwriters. And another friend of his, uh, Janelle Riley, had hired me to do some of her poster art for her plays. And so I, I made it through that winter by doing these little, you know, side jobs and gigs and, and getting in with some other people that, you know, were also writers and directors and creative people. And, and, uh, and then the following spring and summer came around and I all of a sudden Venice picked up back up, back up again and, uh, started making better money and made, or started making more friends with the people I was selling work down on the boardwalk. And they turned me on to some other venues, uh, being like street festivals and college campuses. You could go sell mm-hmm. your stuff. So I realized that anywhere I, saw somebody selling anything, it could be me selling my artwork. You know, you don't have to, you know, be going to, you know, some sort of art event to sell it. I mean, I could show up at a bookstore where there's just people selling handbags and jewelry and I'll sell my art right next to them. And it was doing just fine. Right. But you start thinking about your art as a, as a, you know, you make it for one reason and, and then you're selling it as a commodity. You're selling it as an object of, for whatever people want to buy it for to hang on their walls or whatever. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, also paying attention to what people said when I was selling it, you know, they, so I had these, the first, one of the first things I did when I started getting some money is I got a loan from Apple computer and I bought, bought my own computer, my own scanner, my own printer. So I could cut Kinko's out of the loop. So I didn't have to go to Kinko's and write them a check. And it was just, you know, way cheaper to make my own stuff, you know, mm-hmm. versus a dollar color copy. I can make it for like 20 or 30 cents. Right. You know? And that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're, you know, talking about, you know, you know, sell 10 prints and it costs you $10 or it costs you $2. I mean, that extra $8 is food in your pot, you know, yep. in your career. So looking to, looking for ways to make things more efficient, uh, more cost effective, even on a small scale. And, uh, so I was, the first printer I, I bought, you know, I could print eight and a half by 11 prints. And then I, I figured out a way to package them and nobody would give me a straight answer on that. And mm-hmm. so I was buying sleeves for, photo albums and then taping them around the back. And <laughs> finally I, I found a place, I talked to somebody and, and I found, found a place where you could order these sealable sleeves and packaging, like all these little things that nobody will tell you. Like for some reason, right. one thing I found with the artists in Venice is some of them were just super guarded and secret about the stupidest stuff. And it's like, <laughs> they wouldn't tell me where they got their sleeves because they were, they were worried I was going to be competing. And I'm not, like, I'm not selling your art, but it didn't make any sense to me. Right. Absolutely. One thing I observed is that nobody was taking money out of my mouth because they're selling their art even next to me because people would buy their art instead of mine or vice versa. It wasn't very right. rarely were they like trying to decide who's who they were going to buy from. They'd already, you know, it wasn't going to be decided on who had the nicer sleeves. Yeah, it's just foolish. Perfect. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Like, oh, this guy's got this guy's got the the, the pl- clear adhesive corners on his cardboard backing, so I'm going to go with yeah. him. It's like, come on. Also, the other thing I found is, you know, I, so I've, since then, I've, I've always just told people, if people had questions about things, like, you know, there's some things, like, I might not tell them, like, really production things, but, like, where you're going to get your sleeves, like, how to get, where to sign up, what, what the rules are, I'll tell anybody all day long, because mm-hmm. most people just aren't going to fall through with it anyways. And yeah. So the, people, the people that do are going to find out they don't like it and just bail out anyways. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not, it's, it's one thing to know the, all the things, it's another thing to do all the things. Yeah. I think that's, that's something that's, that's uh part of you know our our generation of artists even though i'm a little older than you it's it's it seems like younger artists are, are a lot more into sharing information and less competitive cuz i remember when i got my dad i started getting my dad bringing my dad into uh the art scene because he sort of got got out of it for a long time and 
you know, was looking to find a new market. He was shocked at how supportive the artists were. He's like, when I was coming up, all the none of the all the artists would snub each other. Nobody would give each give anybody information. It was really kind of cutthroat. So he was shocked yeah. about that. So I think that's that's one thing that that we're doing right. I think you know. Oh, the younger, yeah, maybe so. I I, th- I think it's good. It's good. But um, so I know that you eventually started doing a lot of art fairs and stuff when you started. Is that yeah, so did it, that it, progress all, into the art fairs? It, it progressed into the art fairs. So I was started going to college campuses and street festivals in San Diego and you know around Southern California, and um, uh, I remember eventually. So I I I could see. The one thing I could see was that uh, selling my my own art was more lucrative than working for a company in, in a couple of ways. One, I owned all the rights to my work. So like if I made a painting, I could sell thousands of dollars of prints of that painting before I ever sold the painting or if I even sold it at all. Right. And so I saw that the, the real money to be made in the art for me was to be able to control the, the ownership of it. Mm-hmm. And I could exploit any image I made. So, you know, I, I found that early on in Venice cause I'd make one painting and I would double my income or add, you know, my income would go up by a hundred dollars a day every time I was out there because I'd have that many more sales of that one image. Mm-hmm. Yet I still didn't make a lot of paintings back then. I, I didn't, it was like, I, I was really lazy. In fact, I, I almost look, look back at how I did all this and I took the path that was the most, op, you know, kind of clearly the obvious thing, like making more money selling my art, in Venice than I was at Macy's, it was pretty clear that Macy's was not a, a path to go forward on. Right. You know? And, and so, and then when I made more paintings and made, you know, I started selling prints and I started making money without having to make paintings. Yeah. Right. Like, I seem like, like, well, you can just make paintings as you feel like it. And you can just sit back, kick back and just make money on your prints. Right. You know? right. Just, <laughs> yeah. It's so, really smart. Well, if I would have been as productive then as I am now, I would probably have saved myself a lot of time, right? You know, trying to figure out why I was always broke. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I still know a lot of uh, great artists that aren't aren't doing prints, and it's just like, man, you you basically can probably be making, you know, quadruple what you're making with your originals. I think. Cause I make, I make way more money from, from prints and and merch than I do from original sales. Yeah. It's my, my print business is what I haven't really done the numbers, but I remember there's been times where I don't have to even sell my originals. I can do so. Right. I I remember when, I think when we started hanging out, I, I remember how many, all the originals you still had. You had so many original pieces still. And you were telling me that very thing that, you know, it's like, it was, and it seemed like, Oh, that's so smart. And then you can kind of like, in a way, you can sell the print. I I don't do this because I'm I'm usually scrambling for money, you know, every month. But um, so I sell things as I can. But it's in a way you could <clears throat> use the the print image to promote, kind of make the original famous and hang on to it. You could hang on to something for ten years and sell it for way more because you've been. Yeah, you could. You know, you could do that. The problem is, is that if you do a lot of make a lot of paintings and you're in significant size, you run out of place to store them. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, the other thing is, is like you never know what's going to be famous. You know, like some prints sell really well and others don't. Right. Yeah. So I, I, f- I found that there's there's certain pieces that have a, you know, they never stop with people wanting to buy, buy them, you know, buy prints or the original. And I don't have, you know, I might have sold out prints and the original sold and, 
And um, right. there's, there, I do have a one piece that I did back in 2004 that I sold. It was super popular. It was a fantasy piece, and I sold tons and tons and tons of prints of it, and I still have the original. Right. And I don't think I'll ever sell that original. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, it's, it's yeah. cool to go to your studio or just look through your body of work and see all these kind of different phases you went through. You know, like yeah. you, you had like you had some kind of straight portraits and then you had these fantasy paintings, which re- really look different. Those ones with kind of the blue backgrounds and stuff. And then you have yeah. um, a lot of celebrity stuff you were doing and like outlaws. Yeah. And then you start and then you start doing the cowboy stuff, which is kind of your mainstay now. Right. I mean, it's yeah. sort of your, your roots are in that. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of the signature stuff that I do. I right. Think. Yeah. It's great. But uh, just just to, so, so uh, once you start, if you, if you hear little kids in the background, it's because my granddaughters are here taking a bath, and yeah. Lisa's trying to keep them quiet, but they're just like ah, ah <laughs> laughing and stuff. <laughs> but um, uh, so he, he, he eventually you were what making you you hadn't were you showing in galleries at that point? Because I know at one point you had a, you had bought this no, I mean, amazing I, I, van and were like yeah, driving, well, spending months <laughs> going around the country and making all kinds of money. I, did fo- I didn't focus on galleries. I, you know, I did some, I did a lot of the cannibal flower shows early on. When oh, first right, started right. That's probably where we met, right? Is yeah. That? And then, yeah. And then, uh, the Nathan's gallery downtown, uh, mm-hmm. kind of, the hive, uh, the hive gallery. Mm-hmm. I sold showed there a few times, but I never really focused on it because galleries weren't making me money. Really. They right. they were just like, kind of a feather in my cap, fun thing to do and be with other artists. Yeah. But, and it's a, it's but, a good, uh, good, uh, thing for, um, you know, gives you some esteem in a way, you know, yeah, yeah, people it's, like it's, to know it's, that it's, you show a gallery. To do, but I didn't, I, it, it wasn't a money maker for me. Mm-hmm. I, so I didn't really do it as a, as a way of seeing a way of making money. Right. Uh, Campbell flower would occasionally sell something of mine, but you know, not, they weren't. Yeah. That, those were, so. yeah, that's a, that, Cannibal Flower was like a foot in the door kind of place to me, you know, really helped help me establish myself. I never made a ton of money, but it was like, it was fun too. You know, yeah. it, was, it was cool, so, cool scene. Was, so the one thing that I realized was like, so okay, making, making prints was making money merchant. I saw that licensing and uh, I, I, I was, became, I sort of became aware of other artists that were making money in this way. And that I, and I decided to go do a trade show in New York in 2005. This is the idea is to sell to, to galleries, the gallery owners and people would come to look for artists. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of people started their career by being found or discovered in one of these trade shows. Mm-hmm. So I, I had done a few festivals up to this point. I did the, the Beverly Hills affair in the gardens. And I, the first time I did that show, I did like $10,000 in a weekend. Wow. Now my mind, Oh, this is the way to go. Yeah. Like, I was like, I was, I'm seeing Venice Beach. You know? I'm going to do shows now. And then, uh, and uh, but and then every I didn't quite get up to that for a long time after that. It's like that was like a big hit, right? And then I went to other shows all around, and and, and just was like, I'd make twelve hundred bucks or a couple grand or here and there. It's like, and, and then I, then I didn't get accepted back into the Beverly Hills the next the next fall, and I was like heartbroken. Which is like, crazy oh, if you're if you made that kind of money and you don't get yeah. accepted. Obviously, people liked it. <laughs> well, it's so stupid. They don't do, they don't have any idea what kind of money you're making. That's which seems like I don't know. Seems like they'd be aware of a crowd or the discretion of whoever the jurors are mm. for whatever reason. Pick, you know, yeah. who knows? So I'll bring up this point again later. So <laughs> as part of my <laughs> okay. thinking process as I go got went through this. Um, so where was I? We, we, uh, Beverly Hills, you didn't get, you didn't get accepted. So, and then uh, finally, okay. So then the next spring I got, I got accepted back into the the spring show. I show up there all excited and I make like 
1200 bucks. I'm like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like shit. Oh man. And, but I, I realized, you know, I didn't get too discouraged. I realized that the, there, there were artists that were making big money and I could see some of the artists that some of these other festivals I was doing, doing very well. And I, one thing I realized that I walked into the display is like they had a behemoth display, it looked super slick lined out. The mm. framing was beautiful. And I started picturing my art in their presentation. Mm-hmm. You know, my presentation was bad. It was just, it just as good as I could get to fit my Nissan Pathfinder. You know, right. <laughs> I had everything to fit in my car yeah. and then be reassembled. It was a whole other engineering feat. Right. You know, now, like how much could you, how much stuff could you pack in a small space? Yep. No. <laughs> yeah. So I realized that, uh, I needed to, you know, up my presentation, there had to be an expectation. Like when you walk in, you didn't expect it to be $20, you know, mm-hmm. because it was presented. It was $200. Yeah. Presentation is huge. And so I did this trade show in New York in 2005. I, you know, I, by the time I had my booth space, which was like seven or $8,000, my shipping, uh, my 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 state my lodging and all seven or eight thousand for the booth space. I was in it. I was in it for twelve thousand dollars. I had you know, and I had Holy a shit. ten by ten space. Wow, that's crazy. And, uh, and so I brought what I had with me, and uh, and I made less money in, in that show than I made in Venice Beach the weekend before. Wow, and it was like a, <laughs> it was it was a huge disaster. And I maxed out my credit cards. I borrowed money from my parents. And I didn't even have enough money to burn, to ship my artwork back home to me. So what I did is I just grabbed everything I could fit in my suitcase under my arms and brought it back on the airplane. That's depressing. And down on the boardwalk the next weekend trying to hustle it until I made enough money to have my artwork shipped back to me. And I made enough money to have my cell phone turned back on. And, wow. You know, I, I had to, I had my, my, my studio was separate from my apartment at the time. And I had to borrow money from my landlord to cover the check I wrote them for the rent. <laughs> work on the weekend and come by on Sunday and give him the cash to cover the checks. Oh my god! Like was, I was, I was, I, w- I had refused to borrow any more money. I was like, I got myself into a hole. Yeah. And my friends were like, "Well, we can borrow." And just like, I'm not borrowing any more money, you know. And I just, I had inventory, and I just sold my, and I slowly scraped my way out of it, and. uh, and I, the thing that I learned is when I did that show, I was, I just wasn't prepared for the gallery trade business. So galleries are, were, and, and, and people that were looking for ours, they were looking for something that was kind of already put together. And I had a lot of different styles and techniques right. and subject styles all over the place. Mm-hmm. There were a few people that saw potential and they liked the work, but it was, I, I didn't have my canvas prints figured out then. Mm. And that was really great. So you were doing so paper, paper prints mostly I had paper prints, okay. you know? Yeah. I remember at one point this buddy wanted to buy a paper print from me and then I'm like, okay. And then she whips out this exhibitor badge, like to get a discount. I'm like, I ain't giving you a discount on a $20 print. <laughs> <laughs> like I'd already made zero and you're trying to knuckle me down for right. a discount on an item under $20. <laughs> <laughs> 1950, 1999. So you're down. There's, there's no shortage of people willing to kick you in the teeth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Stay there. <laughs> But uh, I, I could see that the things that were successful, you know, whether you really liked the artwork or not, you know, you, you, I think a lot of times people get upset. A lot of, I see this sentiment from artists. They get upset when they see something they don't think is very good being successful. Mm-hmm. Like, like the mindset is like, I'm a better artist. I'm a better painting or drawing than that. And then why is, why people like that? Why is that making money? Mm-hmm. You know, why is that all? Well, first of all, it may not be making money. You're just seeing it because they're marketing it heavily. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it doesn't make 
that doesn't mean it's selling. If it's in the, just because it's in a gallery doesn't mean it's making money. Right. If it's there for a long time, maybe it is. But if it's there and it's gone, it's, it's just, you know, whatever. Right. People, besides the point. But uh, so they see something they don't think is quality or it's very good or for whatever reason, and they just start you know, poo-pooing on it, you know, like talking trash about it and mm-hmm. about the art world and all that stuff. And, and I understand it because that was my first inclination. But then I set that aside and I looked at it and like, well, why is it working? What are they doing that I can apply to what I'm doing? What, what can I apply to my better work and, and make it successful? You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, you know, if they have biased that mine is better somehow, maybe, maybe it's not. Well, whatever. you know, you got to believe in your work. You know? Yeah. But you know what I'm saying? So you're, yeah. instead of, instead of looking at somebody else's work as, less than you're looking, you're looking at what are they doing that I'm not doing. Right. Right. And, and some of it was, uh, their presentation and, and a lot of it was their production. They were making a lot of paintings. Um, another part of it was, uh, their, the way that they were running their business, what they were doing behind the scenes was really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had, a, they had a thing. It was packed. It was, you know, I, I labeled it as, as gimmickry, you know, like they had a gimmick that they were doing. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that I didn't, well, I saw it and I knew that I wouldn't be happy doing what they're doing, mm-hmm. but I couldn't say that they weren't happy doing it. And if they were happy painting the same sorts of things over and over again, then maybe there was, there's nothing for me to talk trash about. I mean, that's, that's something too. I'm so right, working what, for them. So. My thing. I mean, so like I could see what galleries were concerned about was like, they didn't, they needed to know what to expect from you. Mm-hmm. But what are you going to be doing so that they know how to how to talk about it, how to sell it? And if you're coming out with something different every time, they're just like, right? Their hands, they 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 are not you. They don't know you know how to read your mind, and and it just gets too complicated. They want to sell something they know they know they know what it is. And yeah, right. And in a sense, if you don't if if they don't know what you're you're going to do next, you kind of don't know. It's almost like you don't it's, really it's know yourself. What it, what it is is like if you don't know what you're going to do next, how does anybody else? Going to right. Know? Right. Exactly. And if you don't know how to talk about it, then how is somebody else supposed to talk about it? Right. Right. If you don't know how to sell it. How are they supposed to sell it? Yep. Yeah. And a exactly. lot of, a lot of the times you're going to find when you have uh, galleries or sales managers is they're going to, you're going to need to train them in how to talk about your artwork in the way that you, that you want. You know, you can't expect people to just come in and just pick you off the street and bring you to great heights of success. And yeah, that might yeah. happen. But if, they all of a sudden leave. You don't know how you got there. And you're going to go back right back to where you started a lot of times. Right. Yeah. I, I think part of this journey for me is learning how to do all this has really helped me in, into the level when you start dealing with galleries and other managers and, and representatives, uh, you have to, you have to understand how to talk to them and they have to be able to understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Your, your explanation of your art is a shrug of your shoulders. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> doesn't quite, doesn't exactly inspire confidence. it's an uphill battle Mm -hmm. it makes it an uphill battle right Um, yeah you should make things as easy as possible for whoever's going to be selling your work yeah yeah. or whoever's going to be buying your work too yeah well yeah yeah so something along those lines but so all this time of doing festivals and shows i learned how to talk to people who are buying my artwork I, i started to understand what their concerns were um how, how to negotiate pricing, how to set pricing. And a lot of that was just sort of, like I said, I started with a number out of my hat and then I raised or lowered the prices depending on how desperate or, or not I was or not, you know, or how, how much, the, you know, um, supply and demand there was. If there was, 
you know, if I was going to several shows, like one of the biggest examples of supply and demand pricing for the artwork, and, and I started to do uh, art festivals farther and farther away from home, I'd have to line two or three shows up that would be like in Colorado or Arizona, Texas, and Florida. And if I got to my first show on a leg of a three-show trip and I sold everything I had, then I didn't have anything for the next two shows. I right. cut my and my prices were too low, so I had to raise my prices so that I didn't sell everything out so quickly. Hmm. Interesting. And that the people who really wanted it were the ones that bought it. What happens when you have your prices too low is that people will make a sort of uh, you know uh, impulse buy, like eh, that's kind of cool. I think I'll buy it. And then the person who really would have appreciated it and talked about your artwork and showed it to all their friends. It's not available to them to buy anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. They would have bought it at a higher price. It's sort of you're setting a bar of admission for for the for the fans of your work and people who really I think want want to get a part of what you're doing want to, want to see that you're doing well. Want to see that your yeah. prices are are you know are going up or not, they don't have to you know you can't exponentially go up, but that there's some sort of value there, right? That, that you stand by it. Yep. And so. That, that kind of happens naturally when you start going out and trying to sell in a bunch of different places. You kind of have to do that so that you can have enough work for, to get around every, every place. Mm-hmm. Or if you, if you have a lot of avenues to sell your work, you, you, you can only produce so much. So, you know, either you're going to kill yourself making a million different things or you're going to have to raise your prices so you can focus on making sm- smaller amounts that you feel comfortable making in production. Right, right. But uh, like you know, as you as you're coming up and starting out, you want to make as much as you can. It's one of the you know one of the things I would tell a young artist is to make lots of paintings. Yeah, definitely. You know, if you ever go to a museum and you're walking around and you look at you know you see that they're two or three hundred years old and realize that they've lived they, the paintings that are in museums have somehow survived this long. They've survived natural disasters and fires and floods and all kinds of things. And so imagine how many paintings didn't survive just due to calamity right so you want your paintings to remember throughout time you better have ten thousand of them right <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you know i think what is there like 22 um um paintings by what's his name <laughs> can't, i can't remember <laughs> some um, famous artist who painted the mona lisa who was that oh Leonardo da vinci, da vinci yeah. there's like there's like 25 of his known works available you know around the world and you can't tell me that guy never made more than 25 paintings right. at that kind of level. That guy made 25,000 paintings. Right, right. 25 yeah. survive. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> that is crazy. Better get to work. Get, <laughs> get cracking. Get off your ass. Get off social media and start painting. <laughs> Plus, it's, you know, it's, I, it, it, it's, you know, part, like part of the reason I do these little Halloween studies is, you know, to pay some bills. But, it's practice too. I mean, yeah. it's like, it's great. It's such a great exercise for me. Cause I don't do a lot of portrait portraiture from, from an image, you know? So, and just, just painting a lot. You're just, you're, you know, you're only going to get better and the better you are, the better your paintings are going to be. And so it functions in that way as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, hey, let me ask oh, a question, question yeah, real sure. quick. Uh, and this might, this might be a tangent, but you guys are very different in the sense that chat, you paint paintings that are from your, the imaginal realms as Alex Gray said in the documentary, whereas you know, Gabe is Gabe, you paint images of scenes, correct? Can you speak to that at all? Cause I'm curious about how that works. Yeah, I mean, I'm well, not a painter. I have, so. I have references for my paintings. Mm. They start out as doodles and sketchbook drawings. Sometimes I'll start paintings before I have any references put together. 
but I come up with an idea and I have a setup and I do a lot of historical things. So I'll get costume, rent costumes and props and you know, I'll hire friends of mine that are actors to act out scenes and I'll have a whole improv thing going on. I'll shoot a bunch of photographs of what they're doing that I'll use for the reference of the paintings. And I'll, I'll get specific references for certain poses that I know I want to use. And then I'll use the improv sessions to like figure out things like things I wouldn't have thought of because they just happen naturally. Like mm-hmm. the things that people you can't imagine, you know, you can't think of like the way they hold something, the way any right, number of things. Right, right. The, the way like, the, oh, pretty cool. I like that. That's yeah. You know? The way the so, light hits and the way shadows so hit. And- in essence, it becomes kind of a collaborative effort and how to set it up. But I know what I'm looking for usually from the beginning and what I'm what I'm trying to set up. Right. Does, so, that, does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah definitely. It's, yeah, so, it's interesting because I'm only, you know, being that I'm somebody who is not a painter, A, and B, only really experiences Chet on a, on a whole, really, it's interesting to hear about other angles of way, ways that people approach their artwork. Yeah, it's a really cool way of working. I, I think the way that, that Gabe sets his paintings up is really, it's really I mean, I've kind of done a little bit of that, not to the extent that Gabe has, but it's it's really smart and it's actually really fun because the photographing becomes part of the creative process. Like you're saying, the you know, you're collaborating with these people. You come up with an idea and do a doodle, and then you're like, okay, let me put these people in that actual position of my doodle, and then frame it up. And you know, it's just it's it's fun. It's part of the creative process, you know, to get your photo references. And like you're saying, it, it brings up other ideas and it's, it's, yeah. it's a great way. It's, it's like a, a lot like a, the old uh, illustrators used yeah. to work as well. You know, the pulp it illustrators, a, it can be a double-edged sword sometimes too, because you can become slave to the reference or you end up, you know, you end up copying your reference. Right. So it's a, it's a hard thing to be careful. You're not doing that. And, um, well, you just so start, you you distort, distort things a lot, which is things. really cool. And I generally don't have like one reference for like an entire painting. unless it's just like a face or something. Right. So right. I'm, it's, it's always important to remember that these are refer, references. Are you referring to them? So I know what the shape of the nose. Like if I have somebody's face, I might have a couple slightly different angles so I can mm. see what's going on and what it is. You know, knowing, knowing what it is helps you to understand what you're seeing in the photograph. Yeah, Definitely. And you're not tracing stuff onto canvas. You're, no. you're, you're um, just painting from... I used to do a lot of detailed drawings and then transfer the drawing to painting surface and then carefully render it. And now I just have a blank canvas. And I, I actually, I paint... My technically way I approach things is quite similar to what Chet does just by looking at his time-lapse videos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We do a lot, of the, a lot of very similar things. The way we approach uh, color structure and a lot of... You know, the, the actual uh, kind of penmanship of the brushwork is different, obviously. That's mm-hmm. what I would describe it, but the main principles of the way Chet's painting from what I can see in those time last videos is pretty much how I approach things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. similar. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. I've seen you. I've seen your, your time lapses are really great. Yours are always like well, produced I'm, with titles. And, <laughs> and you know, I, I'm really curious too, also Gabe, because you obviously are much more loose in your painting and Chet is much tighter, like historically speaking anyway. And so or at least each of you seem to have more of a penchant for one or the other. And I know that Chet admires your looseness. Do you admire his tightness at all? I don't. Well, yeah, I mean, but I don't see Chet's paintings as necessarily tight, tightly rendered. I see him as probably more carefully controlled. Yeah. He, he's paints smaller and he, I think he likes to get caught up in the minutia of things a little bit more. Definitely. <laughs> and, uh, I, I tend to do that more when I smoke too much weed. If I'm looking, <laughs> I usually work when I'm not high. It helps me so uh, looser. 
but the looseness, a lot of it is just I'm lazy. <laughs> so you say that, um, but I think it's so much more difficult to, to just the well, way so, I so, paint. It's more difficult to, to make a successful painting that way for me. Also, one thing I do is I paint with bigger brushes. Right. Um, my eyes unfocused, you know, so I won't necessarily be focusing on detail mm-hmm. and, I, and I'll be looking for shapes. I'm looking, I'm looking at my reference. I'm looking at like a shape and how much, how right. much can I describe with one brush stroke or yep. two brush mm-hmm. strokes? So mm-hmm. I, I try to have an economy of brushwork mm-hmm. things. And, and uh, that, you know, sometimes people get confused with looseness for, you know, just sketchy, you know, and I try, try not to be just patchy and just lots of weird brushworks that brushworks that don't mean anything. I mean, I can, I can get that a lot sometimes too, but you try and make the count, you try and make the yeah, stroke I, really count. Goal. So if you watch me paint, I don't paint, I'm not in a flurry. Something I start, I, I don't give a shit. I just, everything's everywhere. Mm. But as I progress with the painting, I get more, uh, con- I consider more what I'm doing with each brush stroke. You know, what kind of brush I'm using to, uh, the, so what kind of strokes can I make with that brush? Is it going to be a soft edge or do I need a clean edge? Or, you know, so I start finding several t- types of brushes that I like to work with at different, different to do different things. Right. Mm-hmm. Can, can, you know what? Oh, go, go ahead, ahead Chet. Sorry. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just, I, I was just curious because when I, you know, the first time I met you, Gabe was in 2013 at the Paradise Artist Retreat, and I was there working on the documentary, and you had a, an enormous display up, and I'd never met you, never seen your work. You were like, yeah. you know, a wild card to me. And Chet was like, oh, you got to check out this guy Gabe's stuff, and it was right next door to Chet, so I walked along, and it was, you know, these enormous paintings, very ornate frames, and the, I would say the vast majority anyway of the subject matter seemed kind of like a, a piratey to some degree and it seemed i would say more fantasy like some of your you know more fantastical whereas it seems like since then in the past what would that be four years it seems like there's been a a kind of a significant evolution in your style towards something that is almost like like is your style as opposed to seem like the work before was maybe more cherry picked and i'm just curious if you can speak to what it is that brought you to where you are now with this distortion of angles and this hyper realism and the the western stuff if you have any idea of what it is that really ushered that in for you I think um, <laughs> the irony is the experience at that ter- the, uh, that retreat is probably what changed everything. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> like, that was that that part of my life is a pivot point. It was like I can see where like right. a, I was a cue ball that struck the bou- the, the bumper of a of a pool table and bounced in a different direction. So it was, <laughs> Can we I'm talk still, about that, or is that something you? Yeah, don't? yeah. So is <laughs> we, do, we do talk about that on here. Yeah, so. psychedelic experience I had, which up until that point I had never, never had. I never even smoked pot, and right. I did probably two and a half, three grams of mushrooms while I was on that uh, retreat. Basically, it's just to have you know, because Chet was on the way up. To, Chet, Chet and I drove there together, and we were talking about it. We still didn't know each other really good as friends. Yeah. We were like colleagues yeah. at that point. Yeah, we, you know? we knew each other. But we we weren't hanging out or anything right. like we'd talk and we bullshitted and you'd come over to my studio once I think. And, right, right. you know, whatever. But, uh, Chet was telling me about his experiences on psychedelics and how they have, uh, impacted his, his, uh, way of approaching things. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I did, I ate a mushroom one time and as a rave and one time at a party and I don't, I don't it didn't really do anything for me. So, yeah. Whatever. And he's like, Oh really? <laughs> yeah, man. It's just really impacted. I was like, well, you know what? You know, I'd be, I'd be open to, 
testing that out. And so when we got there, it turned out that somebody had a bunch of them. And it's like, all right, so I'll do it. It's like, you know what? I want to go into orbit. <laughs> like, show me, prove it to me. Show me what you're talking about. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta jump in because it's the whole way that the, the whole way that happened was so funny. The, the experience of when we took them. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I knew that you had taken some and I had taken some and well, you, you gave them to me because you, you had them and you, you had your hand out and I'm in your palm and you look at me and then you look at your palm and you look at me and then you'd add a few more. You look at me and you maybe take a little bit back. You're like gauging, like, I don't know what's just going to. Well, I didn't know how strong they were. That was the thing. So then, yeah. then I took some and then you went off and I'm like, I'll meet you in like 10 minutes and then we'll go figure, you know, we'll go to the Alec, Allison Gray. Uh, took and it was right before the Alex, the Alex Gray lecture where he's talking about like Buddhism and well, yeah, all the. Right, 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 right. But, yeah. the, but, but the thing is, is I, I went off and I was like, okay, I'll meet you in 10 minutes. And then yeah. I went and I was talking to someone and they hit like immediately. And I was like, oh, shit, these are really strong. I got to go get Gabe. And so I like rushed off to go find you because I knew he'd never done that before. And I wanted to make sure you didn't go go insane or whatever. And so and then I was thinking, you know, OK, we're going to go do the Alex Gray, the spiritual Alex Gray uh, life life drawing course. And so I get in there and then get, and it's like every, Alec, Allison, you know, Allison Gray, Alex's wife is very, you know, you, you don't fuck with her. She's really she's, you know, she's really sweet and amazing. They're both amazing. But, you know, she was like quieting the. The audience down okay everyone be quiet and gabe is just like no 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 no. this is what happened she, <laughs> allison said something he was talking and then he put the microphone up and then we're about to get started and then she jumped up to the mic she's like she's like oh, i just want to say one more thing and i'll make it brief and i turned to chet and i go not brief enough yeah and it was pretty <laughs> it was pretty loud he was coming on and he's he was like he kept laughing and i was like oh man and it was like every, the roof started getting all quiet and i was like okay this was a bad idea so i grabbed him by the arm and i'm like we got to get out of here now before this starts before, before that you're like, you're like oh yeah you might start laughing really loud yeah. and you're like, i couldn't stop i started laughing and so then i yanked his arm pulled him out of the room in the auditorium and as soon as he gets outside of the doors he just goes down on his belly and starts laughing and ki- kicking his feet and stamping his hands cracking up <laughs> It was so classic. And then I was like, okay, we got to get you to the room. So then we got you to the room. Anyway, that was the part I wanted to add in there. Well, I mean, well, and I witnessed, I, and I, then I witnessed it shortly thereafter <laughs> and I won't go into any detail, but I was a party to the experience and also ingested some myself and it was quite the night, but, but I, you know, I was curious, really was legitimately curious if this change was yeah, as so a what, result what of happened, that experience. Yeah. What happened with that experience is that it is, I could clearly see what I'd always been trying to see mm-hmm. and it became obvious. Right. And, and you kept saying, it's so yeah, obvious. I kept saying, it's and, so and obvious. Then, <laughs> and the thing is, once you, once you, once that cat's out of the bag, it ain't going back in. Like right. you can't unsuckadelicize yourself. Like right. it, it's like imagine not learning, imagine going back to not being able to read. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, imagine if you spent another 20 years without seeing another written word and you saw, saw a paragraph, you'd instantly be able to read it. You, you just can't unknow. Right. Yeah. And so that translated into my paintings is like I started to see how things all came together and I started thinking about things instead of of parts and bits. I could see the whole, you know, I think about things in compositions and the way I see color. Started to really understand and pay attention to what color was and how. And so the evolution of my painting has really turned into uh, the organization and structure, not only of the figures and composition, but of color and all kinds of things. And so that's that's how it's that's what you're seeing. Right. Is, uh, my, 
my ability to comprehend it and then translate it into into painting. Yeah, it's funny because people think it, people that haven't done it, or or maybe people that have done it that are are not artists, think that oh, you probably just get like crazy ideas from it, and it's like you know my ideas haven't changed. It was for me, it's like you see see things technically that you couldn't see before. Like I remember you one, better, well, but you yeah, you get better at seeing. And that's right, the hard part. right, right, exactly. I remember one time during for the ego death show, I had a painting um, that I was like, yeah, it's not quite right. It was. Uh, it was that f- called fetish, this weird, creepy mm-hmm. guy. And something wasn't right with it, something simple, and I couldn't get it. I was staring at it, staring at it, staring at it. And then I uh, had a, a little a trip during that time. And I remember looking at the painting and going, oh, my God, it's it's right in front of my face. It's so completely obvious. It was like <laughs> it was basically that this symmetrical painting was slightly off center. It was that one line was off center and it was like, that's all I had to do. And it was like, Oh, now it's, now it's right. And it was so, yeah. I felt like such an idiot. Cause it's like, it was, it should have been obvious from the beginning, but it's, I've had that when I, when I, on the end of mushroom trips and stuff, when you're kind of coming down and I look at my paintings that I've been working on. And I remember one time I looked at this painting and it's the same thing. I couldn't figure out what it was. And then I realized, Oh, her arm's too short. <laughs> it's like way obvious, but there's nowhere to make her arm longer. So it's just going to be that way. Right. And now I know what's wrong with it. this is this is like a good little segue into one thing i've been wanting to ask you for years um you know your stuff is you definitely uh one of the things i love about your your paintings aside from the the i really love the action the motion your paintings are very like have so much movement in them um and the colors i you know even before you ever tripped your color you did a lot of really kind of psychedelic colors in your paintings which were which is kind of cool but uh the distortions are really interesting. And one thing you have, a, some these guys have these huge hands that doesn't seem like it would work, but it totally works in the painting. And it's like, I was wondering how did the giant hand thing come in? What did that just happen? Or yeah, it's I mean, so it's signature of your stuff. You it's, know, it's fun. And it seemed to work with the kind of characters I was doing, right. like these big tough brawly dudes. Right. I mean, the, the biggest example I can point to a reasoning for that is like, I mean, people make fun of Donald Trump for small hands. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> so the opposite would be true of big hands, right? right. <laughs> well, you know what the ladies say. If you have big hands and big feet, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I guess, I mean, I could come up with a bunch of different uh, other explanations for it. I mean, one of the things I remember being a, as a kid is, Sitting in my grandpa's lap, and his hands were huge, and his thumb was like a tree trunk. I just remember he was like six <laughs> foot five. I just remember big, strong, burly right. dudes and hands that just seemed to be a character design that went together. And it's and it's fun, and and now I know it's kind of one of the you know gimmicky things that I do. But I don't do it as a gimmick. I do it because it's fun, and I like to do it. Right, right, right. But all the distortions and, and characterizations are generally in 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 trying to propel the idea of who this person is, or the attitude, or the story. Right. You know, yeah, I it, like. I don't do it just for its own sake. I did a painting of big, huge hands one time, just for its own sake. But, but as far as these, most of these paintings, I'm not just doing it because it's what's expected. I do it because right, because you want to. Yeah, yeah. I think it's cool that they, that you have these distortions like that, and which could be, uh, if not handled properly, they could end up looking cartoony, and your stuff never looks cartoony. You know, I think that's yeah, really yeah, interesting. Totally that you're able to pull that off. It's really cool. And so there's enough, well, it's believable because there's enough anatomical correctness to it. And there's enough things that are right. Believable about it to, to not look like a, just a straight up cartoon. You know, another way that, uh, I, I've always felt an, an affinity with Gabe's paintings uh, in regard to my own is that 
we both have relatively simple backgrounds and compositions, you know, that's one thing that I can, I, I totally am like, this is one of the things I really love about your paintings. Cause you know, I like, uh, I like paintings where there's a lot going on, you know, for some artists, but I, I really love the simplicity of the compositions and that if there's just not, it's just, just right. There's not too much to look at. You know what I mean? And I think we both yeah. kind of try and do that. Focus on you the both have a lot of ambiguity too. Like you guys both, both of your paintings lead me as the audience to want to know what's happening off canvas, like both of you. And, right. and that's something that again, as a filmmaker and you're thinking frames and you're thinking what's happening and where's the dramatic action and what does this mean? The, the talent that it takes to be able to capture that in a single cell, you know, and that's what a painting is, is unfathomable to someone like me, who's a filmmaker, but also to have this story that's developing off canvas canvas and that you're engaged. So there's a visual dialogue that's going on between you and the canvas because you're wondering, well, I see this guy is shooting, but I don't know what he's shooting at, but he looks, right. this looks hard fucking core the smoke. <laughs> and, and he looks freaked out. He's like going to fall. So this is intense, but you don't know what's happening. Right. And so your mind inevitably paints in those details. And so it, it is it makes so you wonder, you know? Yeah. It's this ambiguity. Well, it's, again. well that's what the less you, the key to it is not, over describing everything. That's why I don't get in a lot of details because mm. I, I can get caught up in, in those things too. And, and it's not important that you can be able to tell right. the engraving on the edge of a barrel of a gun. Right. You know, you know that can be some cool trickery. I, I see a lot of art that I think when it doesn't have anything really cool about it other than its technical prowess, you know, like it's so well rendered and beautiful that you just, but it doesn't really do anything else. Right. It doesn't have a feel, that, much feeling to it. It's yeah, more of like, so I, I, I find that when uh, it's my well, something in my painting is lacking, the, and I start trying to make up for it by putting in more detail, you know, I become wary of it. Sometimes what I need to do is just take a bigger brush and wipe out a few things, right? Drop focus on what's important, right? So the backgrounds being abstracted is, you know, you can do that all day long because you've never seen somebody not in an environment, so your mind will just make an assumption based on what it's seeing and invent it. And it's, I think it was one of the things that helps to keep a viewer engaged is that they're they're involved with looking at it and entertained. And Absolutely. And because it, it can constantly shift depending on what they're going through, they can constantly be entertained by it. Mm -hmm. Never mm -hmm. knowing, never having the answer of what exactly is going on is, I think, something that helps people keep engaged with the work. Absolutely. Um, and I, I would rather them, you know, if I have a show, I want people to walk away and remember at least one piece that they saw, you know, like, I, I don't want to go to, like I wouldn't want to go to an art exhibit and then walk away and not even remember what I just looked at. You know, I'd have to think about like, what is it I just saw? Right. You know, there's nothing that really captured my memory. I'm not thinking about it on the way home. You know, right. <laughs> <laughs> you, know you, you want, you, you kind of want to just like punch someone in the stomach real hard, real quick, you know, visually. Right. It doesn't have to be much to it, to a painting, you know, a lot of that is captured immediately in the composition and color palette. And if you, you know, once you can get their attention in a real sort of basic way, then you can focus some attention on where they, where you want them to look and what's important to be looking at. And, uh, and as far as like what's happening, it's all told in the, in the, con in the subtext, like, you know, you know, if a character's in the painting, you should be able to tell what's going on by the way that they are sitting, like their gesture, their movement, like you have enough understanding of body language to interpret those things, mm -hmm. but it's not as, mm -hmm. it's not as defined as like actual written and spoken language. So they can use, they have to use their own words. Directly. Right. 
Well, it's also like as an audience member, I'm, I'm have first person POV. You know, this point of my point of view in your paintings and Chet's paintings. Similarly, I feel like I'm there looking at a thing and I'm part of it somehow. Like I'm, you know, I'm like the fly on the wall observing this action. And again, that is that's something that that's why I equate you guys together. Even though you guys are vastly different in your style and your technique and your subject matter, nevertheless, it conjures that same sensibility for me, which is why I like it. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> well, I wonder I, what, what, where do you think you, I mean, I know learning how to paint is this ongoing process that takes years and years and years, but um, where do you credit most of what you know about crafting a painting and composing things properly and economy of brushstroke? Is there, is, can you point to, was it school? Was it, personal experience? Was it studying other artists? I mean, where did you learn all of, all of this technique? Well, uh, it's a good question. There are some things that helped me a lot. Landscape painting huh. was a big part of it. And uh, portrait portrait painting in college is like when I first started getting into painting, portrait painting and landscape painting, and I still approach most of my paintings as landscapes, like with a lot of the uh, ways of creating space and, and uh, atmosphere and all that kind of stuff in a painting, it's still landscape painting. Wow. In fact, I figure I, I, I count all figurative painting as landscape painting too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. But uh, a lot, most of it is, I, I feel like, so I've been, I started oil painting when I was 19 in college and then I got into mixed media and I picked up the oil paints again when I was about you know, 24, 25. Mm. So I've been, painting for the better part of 20 years. And I feel like I'm just starting to figure some things out. Yeah, totally, man. <laughs> uh, that's what I, 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 it's like, I still am. I just, you know, just re just my last show. I'm like, Oh, I've gotten so much better this since the last, yeah, last one. Not yeah, that it shows in the work necessarily, but, but it's as far as the, uh, the ability to be able to do it, you know, more efficiently yeah. and stuff is just like, like I'm just, I'm just figuring out how to get really good at grays. Uh-huh, right, right. <laughs> yeah, grays are so important. So well, it's important. it's the key to everything. Mm -hmm. It's the key to having uh, luminous and vibrant yeah, painting. Absolutely. <laughs> yep, yep. Grays and values temperature and, yep, and stuff. Temperature and, and, and not only understanding, but knowing how to do it effectively and how to use it. And so I've been That's using funny because Chad just brought that up on the last podcast. He so brought up grays. Gambling yeah. yeah. Portland gray light, Portland gray medium, and Portland gray dark, and then Payne's gray. Uh, yeah. And using that as the base to then tint on what you know so instead of taking uh colors and trying to gray them down i take grays and tint them with colors oh, interesting yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah it's funny because like, this like mike was saying this came up on the last podcast i've been do you know that painter vincent desiderio sounds familiar but he's I'm like a sure. kind of a big famous painter but um yeah. com contemporary but uh he i was watching one of his lectures and this is just just from watching this lecture it was like it just hit me you think i would know this by now but i didn't really and i kind of intuitively was doing it but not totally but it was you know he brought up the point about you know having a the the thing is color having your color temperature change on each like say say okay he had like a <clears throat> he had like a figure he was painting just doing this demo for a class and he was like okay i'm gonna do the the highlight you know he's talking about the cool cool highlights, warm shadows or warm highlights, cool shadows thing. And he was saying, and I said this last week, but I'll say it just, you know, to tell you, but um, he was saying, you know, okay, so I'm going to have the, um, the highlight is going to be 
uh, warm, and then the the local color is going to be cool. And the, oh no no, it was the highlight is going to be cool. The local color is going to be warm, and then where the form turns, um, he, he does it by scumbling over over wow. a toned toned uh, like an uh, an amber color painting, and so he kind of scumbled the edge of that to make it um, uh, cool again. And then he said, that, you know, your shadow area is like a neutral and that ends up looking warm because it's next to cool. So you've got a cool, warm, cool, warm thing going. And he's like, that's sort of the 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 way to do to treat forms. And it's and it's funny because I saw that and I was like, oh, it's so obvious. <laughs> and then I went and I started doing it in my paintings just right after that. And I was like, yeah. oh, this is what I've been struggling to try and do, but I didn't know what I, I was doing it. You know, I, yeah. So a lot of that has to do with what's, you know, is, is the, is the cool temperature in the background or the foreground. And and so I approach these as foreground background. So mm. if something's, something is dominantly cool, that means it's receding. And so if you put like a little bit of warm, it pops out. Right. And I, like all my noir series of paintings, which is like these black and white type paintings I did mm. they They didn't use black and very little white. They're all using various tones of, uh, uh, like earth tones, like raw and burnt umber. Mm. So like burnt umber is warm and raw umber is coolish greenish. Right. And and then uh, raw sienna and burnt sienna, the same sort of things. And mm. then yellow ochre and you know, always. And then uh, Naples yellow. And uh, then I use an indigo blue. And the indigo was a really dark but cool. Mm. Like I used to darken and cool something. And then like a lizard and crimson is like a dark but cool red. You know, cool red. Right. Um, so all these different tones that I would use to create space and structure by, by varying the temperature of the color rather than changing the uh, light or darkness of it so much or the, or the value of the intensity of the color. Right. That's one thing he said also is having a, a warm and a cool version of each color in your palette was like, Oh, it's so obvious. I've never done that. I've always just kind of mixed them as I went, but it's like such an obvious thing to do. Well, like these Portland grays that I've been using from gambling, they, uh, they don't really have it. They're, they're really super neutral. They don't, out of the tube seem to have a really warm or cool tone to them, like mm-hmm. like the, like the earth tones do. So like if I take a one of those grays and I mix like cadmium red, it that gray automatically cools down that red. But if I take that gray and I put it into like a cobalt blue, it automatically warms up that blue. Right, right. It's like, <laughs> so they're like they're like almost like a cheat, you know, right. <laughs> pre-mixed value structures that are that are really as neutral as you can get temperature wise. And I've had problems with some paints grays from different, different manufacturers being a little too cold and, or, or something, or mm-hmm. you know, like a greenish or, you know, it, it's weird. It's like, you have to kind of pick out which one, which pigments from which manufacturer work the best right. for what you do. Yeah. That's one of the things that guy was saying too. He was saying, you know, the, the company makes a difference. So I'm going to try those. Cause I remember last time you recommended paints to me, it was the, uh, gambling, those, those pastel, Green. what, Radiant green, yeah, the radiant, radiant I yeah. I love radiant green. I yeah, <laughs> those things are great. Those things, are, those are yeah. great colors: radiant blue and radiant green and radiant violet. But uh, yeah, so interesting. Well, well, pro tips, pro tips pro for tips, you out there, people. Pro tips. Yeah. Well, we're getting near the end, but um, the conversation is so good, I don't want to stop it. But I, I, I want to. Uh, uh, so we probably should have you on again, but um, I don't want to cut sure. it too short. But um, what? I, you know, this is kind of a dumb question and I, I kind of hate it when people come to me with this question, but I'm still going to come to you with it, which is, you know, sometimes people say, do you have any advice for a new artist? <laughs> I'm like, be more specific, oh. but you know, what are the, what are the big important things? Cause we, I, we have a lot of um, artists that listen to this podcast and, and especially a lot of, you know, newer artists that are still learning about painting. All right. 
and and you know it could got, be business got, or it could be tips. okay good, I got, good, well, good. Three, maybe four. Oh yeah yeah <laughs> good work yeah right excuse me meet your deadlines and be easy to work with do good work meet your deadlines and be easy to work with yeah yeah that's important that's Don't like a backup plan yeah <laughs> that's that's important regardless of whether you're an artist but or not I, right, that's, right. that's true to business that's like woody well, allen saying 99 of success is, uh, is showing really, up if, if you really want to be an artist and that's what you want to do make a living with it it needs to be the the the, the best option you have in front of you right yeah that's true and as long as you have some other option that's better you'll keep doing that other option yeah. So it has to be the only thing that you have that you can do. Like you aren't willing to accept anything else. Right. Right. Or you're yeah. You, fi- you have to be willing to do things that other people aren't willing to do. Like selling selling your work on the street on the sidewalk. Most a lot of people just don't want to do that. It's beneath them. But right. And I didn't suspect that that would be a gateway into any sort of success. I just I had to do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I what are my options? Not paying my bills. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I, 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 that's another thing I, I you know, uh, I want to bring up too that I was planning on bringing up is that I like, I love that, uh, you've always had a very pragmatic approach to the art business. Whereas, you know, I know a lot of people are very much like, uh, what's the word uh, kind of, I don't know if there's a, I don't want to say airy fairy or arty farty, but it, like very much like, you know, business shouldn't come into it. It's my soul I'm bearing and, you know, stuff like that. And it's like a game they want to play. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. But it's, and it's like, you know, there, there's truth to that, you know, soulfulness and putting your, you know, energy into it and, and really it being a a spirit. Well, let me, let me, let me me, me finish. Wait, let me finish. You know, there, (laughs) there is some truth to, I believe to to that, that there's this spiritual element to painting and to art really. I mean, that's why, that's why it's special ultimately, but you know, there is also this physical world we live in and, and, you know, there is business and there is making money and, you know, to, to just <clears> deny <throat> that as, as a way of like, it's almost like, yeah, a well, way of I feeling know superior, you know? And my answer to that was there's two hats you wear. You're the, the, the artist is the hat you make, which is all the spiritual and, and, uh, you know, without, without regard to the sales. And then you put on your salesman hat and your business hat, and then you got, you have this product, you got to figure out how to sell. Mm-hmm. And so what you got to figure out how to do is cross the two wires that, or what you want to do and what's moving. Right. Right. And if you, what you want to do doesn't move commercially, then it's not, it's, it's okay to do your artwork and then do another job to make your bill, pay, pay your bills. Right. There's nothing to, it's, there's no sort of like validation or superiority that comes from being able to sell your artwork and make a living out of it. Right. You know, it's, it, I think people put too much pressure on themselves about that, living up to what other people are doing. Right. To value and other people's success and not their own. Like, you know, yeah, I agree. It might be easy for me to say that since I I'm doing a lot of the things that a lot of artists want to do, but uh, I don't begrudge anybody or I don't think less of them if they're not making a living at their art. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think that part of it, like I said, is just to not put so much pressure on yourself, and then the other part of it is to, is to not have so many hangups about what you're doing, like all the rules why you can't do this. Like, you know, I, I I've had them too. Like I don't want to make two of the same painting. 
<laughs> and I find out that when I make the second or study painting, that I'm actually picking up and learning things. Oh, totally, man. Yeah. And so I've, I've reduced it down to, you know what, making paintings are fun. I get to make, if I have whatever I'm doing. And so any, any project I take on, I, I find a way to enjoy it. Right. You know, and what I, what I like to do happens to be commercially successful. It happens to work. Um, I didn't create what I'm doing to sell. I, whenever I've tried to do that, it was abysmal failure. It comes off as contrived, and yep. you know, I didn't have a style. I tried to come up with a style, and, and, and I finally it took me eight years to figure out sort of a cohesive style after mm-hmm. I got into art school. It's eight years, right? And even that's still evolving and changing. You know, then the thing is, is like you get kind of a, a style developed, and you want to experiment and break away and do some other things, and people people that are following collecting your work don't like it. You know, right. they don't want you to do that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there is, there is a transactional relationship between the audience and the artist, you know. And so I do things that I know that my fans are going to like, and you know, I, I feel like I'm an entertainer. And so I get on the stage and dance around <laughs> <laughs> and have a good time doing it. And right. I, in a, I'm doing all kinds of things in technical speak that nobody is really paying attention to, but I get enjoyment out of in my studio. Like, so when I work on all these paintings, I'm not thinking about what all these characters are doing or all the storylines that are going on. I'm thinking about How's this color working? And right. why doesn't the composition not quite fit? Totally. And why is there a hat so close to the edge of the painting? How do I fix that? Right. <laughs> that's that's, that's exactly. what I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about you know like how badass these people are. Right. Right. <laughs> absolutely. You know, absolutely. I could, Chad, when I look at your paintings, I don't I don't see them as dark or scary. I find them very humorous. Yeah. I don't know. If because I know you, but I just I see you sitting in the back laughing every time you're fans. That's what I picture is you're laughing behind every one of them. That's what well, that's what my parents, my mom especially, actually both my parents, they always thought my stuff was really funny, you know. Yeah. And and I've always it's like like but like you 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 said, I'm not thinking I'm trying to make it funny. I'm really just trying to entertain myself and do a really amazing painting because it's fun to do a good painting. It's so much fun to paint and to do it well. So that's all my focus is on. And they just come out funny a lot of the times, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I see in it. You know? <laughs> oh, uh, 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 sorry. Hold on. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Sorry. Uh, my wife's asking me for my wallet. Uh Oh, there's trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, yeah. Sometimes I do stuff that's, I don't think, Sometimes it's even the you know the act of making something scary to me is almost like a funny thing to do. It's it's almost even when it's an evil thing, it's almost like you're playing a little joke on the viewer, you know, yeah. like trying to scare them. It's very much like it's almost like in a good natured way. Gag. Yeah, it's like a gag or a <laughs> prank in a way. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I, I find my paintings humorous too. Like like there's a lot of things that look serious, but because I think because of the distortion things where they're drawn, they come across as a little bit not not so serious right. like you can look at it and not be not see the you know like people shooting guns and you know all kinds of crazy shit going on and outlaws but th- there's sort of a tongue-in-cheek way of approaching it right right they're fun so, fun i think is the word you know they are fun i agree but i also find chet's work fun too what's that i, I find both of you guys's work fun i enjoy yeah. it it's fun I good, it's yeah. Fun. I mean, that's that's kind of the goal. Is like I want people to be entertained by it and enjoy looking. They don't have to like the subject matter or necessarily even like the painting, but if they can be entertained by right. it in some 
you know, then that's that's good. That's cool. That, that's that's how I view it. Yeah, that's. I remember Cam DeLeon telling me that. That's the first time I ever heard art art as being entertaining. Is he says he wants the art to be entertaining. I was like, yeah, that's a great point. Right here, people like grumbling about like some sort of uh, abstract art or something they don't get. I'm like, what? Did you like looking at it? Right. <laughs> Did you like looking at it? Did you like making it? That's all there really is to it. (laughs) Really? Exactly. (laughs) You you don't have to have an explanation for it. You know, it's like, you don't have to understand it. It would just be either you like it or you don't. Absolutely. Uh Oh, there's your, whose phone is that? That's Mike's. Well, um, I, I guess that's a good place to end it. We're at like an hour 15. So, uh, that was, uh, that was, uh, that was great. I appreciate you coming on. And, uh, We got to definitely got to have you on again because that was that was a great conversation and and there's yeah like, you have me on if there's people that have questions you know yeah people go right into your show and ask questions and stuff so yeah we could have you yeah. on a Q and A episode that would be cool that would be awesome well cool well thank thank you for coming on I really appreciate it and uh, I know awesome. Mike does as well and um, yeah it's been great people are gonna be stoked it's gonna have great information so cool. yeah. Um, uh, okay, so I guess we're going to end it. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Gabe, for coming on. And uh, thanks, Mike, for doing this podcast with me. Yeah, absolutely. And oh. thank you all for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes when you guys get an opportunity. It really helps keep us in the charts where people can find us. You can also engage by sharing us on social media. You can also comment on SoundCloud. There's a variety of ways. Share it with a friend. Yes, please. Yes, the word is getting out. People are... People are loving the podcast so please help spread the word because it's been a total word of mouth kind of thing so and thank you for listening okay thanks gabe thanks mike catch you guys next wednesday bye